As long as they bring donuts. We, oh, we look, we're live. We're on air. Good morning. It is, it is good to be here with you. Just went on the internet, typed in sermons for the morning, printed it out. That's why you don't see my name on any of this. That's right. No, I'm just kidding. You'll notice that um, I've got three scriptures read today and, and we are going to read them they are the same story and, and I've done this before and I wanted to do it again because I had so much fun doing it I know you did too um, I, I was thinking about communion and um, so I wanted to look into the last supper but I wanted to see how each of the authors treated it how how different it was between them and, and obviously they're they're pretty much they're close you know they're they're not the same they're similar. Uh, there are some differences in them, and I want to explore those differences and, and talk through them. Um, so a little bit of, of background on the authors, just, just as a reminder for everybody. Matthew was a disciple. He followed Jesus around, uh, was with him in the trenches doing all the things that, that needed to be done. And, and P.S., I have more handouts if we, I know, Okay, good, you have more. Okay, they're on the printer, too, if we have more people come in. Um, so Matthew is a disciple, walked around with Jesus, and, um, you know, saw everything, did everything with him. So for the most part, people can take, we can take what Matthew said and, and really um, look into his story to see where the detail is going to come out of. What's interesting is, of course, that not everything that is in Matthew is in the others, and that not everything that's in the others is in Matthew. So there was this concept as, as scholars started to look at the way that the Bible was written or the stories that were told of who wrote what first. And, and there's this big contention in, in the scholarly world about uh, the authorship and, and who's writing what and when and how this plays out with everybody. So many people believe that Mark wrote his first, his book, and then the others came and followed and took what he said and added it to their stories, right? Added it to their book. And they used that Mark as a source. Now, there are things, again, um, that show up on all, in all three of them, and that's why they believe that, because it's word for word what Mark said. There are other times when um, they, they all say something or, or two of them say something, but the other didn't, but they say the exact same thing. And so they take that to say that um, if, if it's not in Mark, but it is in Matthew and Luke, that probably they had another source that they're pulling from, and they call that the Q. It's, it's German for, um, for source. Yeah. I'm assuming they wrote it like on papyrus, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. So if Mark wrote his gospel, how do they share that? It, that so because we didn't have the internet. Yeah, have painstaking. <laughs> there, the, there was no Dropbox. There was no Dropbox. No. How, that, how, how do you think that worked? It, Office Depot. It, Office Depot. They went to the Kinkos. They they wrote it letter by letter, mm -hmm. and that's how they copied it for each other. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they they literally co hand copied every single paper that they had, and, and then they, they sent them to each the other. Church, so mm -hmm. distributed. Yeah. 
So yeah. then they sent them by foot. Yeah, pretty much. That's how the Torah was done. Yeah. Generations. They would have scribes, scholars sitting there and literally just letter by letter, not word for word because they had to be very clear on what they were saying. Letter by letter, they copied these things and then they would send them out. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Young Jewish boys would, would uh, write their own Torah in class. Mm. And that would be theirs for their life. And, and you would hear that concept as the generational Bible for that family. So they were passing down the scriptures that the, the grandfather, the great-grandfather wrote down for himself. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting the way the Bible was put together. Um, but, but to hear, again, all these similarities between, but again, word for word what Mark said is found in Matthew or in Luke. And then you've got others, another source that they're looking into and saying, okay, I'm going to pull from that. So the way that these three Gospels in particular were pulled together is just fascinating. But we really don't know who wrote what first because we don't have the original, original manuscript. We have the copies, to your point. We have the copies of what they wrote. We can date those, but that really doesn't give us much. Others believe that maybe Matthew and Luke wrote theirs and then Mark expounded on that. I do believe that Mark was probably one of the first writers of the Gospels and then others came along and they copied his. Not, not for plagiarism's sake because they wanted to tell the whole story. That's really what it's about. So Matthew, I, I take his and I look at it and I say you were with him. So you're going to have some very clear details about what's going on. Mark was a young teenager, a young boy following the disciples around. So we all know Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, right? But we see a lot of, a lot of detail in his story. Uh, and what's interesting about his stories is that you'll, you will see the words, and immediately, a lot. He says that so many times. So Mark writes like an evangelist. He, he has this evangelistic perspective that, that Jesus, God, is doing things right then and there. It's to fulfill a purpose. It's, it's activating something in the spirit. Uh, and even in the natural. And so you'll see Mark kind of gloss over some stuff because he's, he wants to get to the root of the message as quickly as possible and let others know what's going on. Luke is a doctor. He was a physician who later in life said, I want to tell this story to a lot of people. So, so many scholars do believe that Luke was the last to write his gospel um, and that he took Interviews. He, was, he painstakingly met with everybody that was out there to try to get the full picture. So he read Mark's book, probably read Matthew's book, uh, maybe not, we don't know, um, but definitely tried to compile everything and put it all together. Which is why, to me, it's very interesting when they don't align together, right? Uh, so I need to look, we need to look at the nature of who they are and what they're trying to say based on their personalities to, I think, get the real picture of what God is trying to tell us in all of this. Um, I was, we were with the family the other day, um, just having dinner outside. You know, the little girls were playing with their little kid, and um, we, we just started talking about life and, and work and all these things, and then the, the wife at one point said, you know, I just, I find it fascinating or, or how did they know to come out of the water, those, the, those first beings that, that evolved into what we are? And, and I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry? Um, and yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't want to say, she's a Christian, the, the family's Christian, they go to, or they went to uh, the, the Christian school that our daughters used to go to. And, and it kind of threw me for a loop because I thought, well, as a Christian, 
how could you think that any part of evolution is real? But here you are kind of being fascinated by it. I mean, I'm fascinated by science, but I, I don't say anyway. Um, it, yeah. Okay. So, but she said that, and it kind of it, it kind of gave me pause. We didn't we didn't respond to it. Nobody said anything. Everybody was just kind of sitting there. Yeah, interesting. And then we moved on to the conversation, right? Um, but the, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because we look out there at at Christians, at Christianity, and and as a saint, you have to recognize we are very different than many Christians out there. And, and I'm not saying better. I'm not saying that, that God has chosen us and us only. I'm not saying these people aren't going to heaven. I'm not saying any of that. But you have to recognize that you are called to something very, very unique. And, and a lot of it, all of it, is based on the, the absolutely 100% belief in Scripture. Because otherwise, why wouldn't you believe in evolution? As much as science out there is touting this and that and dinosaur bones and all these other things, why wouldn't you believe? There's so much, quote unquote, evidence for evolution. Those are, there's not. There's so much of this, this evidence out there for it. Why wouldn't you believe that? And, and I'll tell you why. It's because it's not necessarily true evidence. It's someone's theory about something that happened, and it makes sense a lot of times, but it's not necessarily truth. So we have subscribed to the word of God as truth. And, and I say all that because as saints, we have to look at these scriptures and really truly understand them for what they're trying to say. We don't just read them on the surface. And, and that's why I wanted to do this today because we don't read just on the surface and say, yep, that's a cool story. We really have to look at the meat of what God is trying to tell us within these stories and how they work together. And that's really where, where Sunday school and this study comes and, and really strengthens us and takes us to that next level. So with all that said, we're going to start here in Matthew 26. Uh, again, disciple, he was writing this to the Jews so that they could hear the story of Jesus and truly understand who Jesus was and how he impacted them. So we're going to read this whole thing, and then we're going to see what else it says in the other ones. Matthew 26. I'm going to read it kind of fast, though. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the place of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus subtly and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right, let's pause there. We're going to read this same passage here in Mark. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. So same thing, just a little bit shorter. And then finally, we'll read in Luke. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. I'm going to pause there because that's it. That, that was those three passages. What I've done for you uh, is, I, and I did this in Excel last night, I, I've taken these scriptures and I've matched them line for line where they match with each other. So you can see a lot of gaps uh, over here on the left. You'll see some on the, in the middle or on the right. Um, but what I've done, like I said, what I've done is I've aligned where it says in that scripture what's going on. 
And the first block, I should have I blocked them out for you, but that first block is found here uh, for Matthew between verses 1 and 6. And it's basically saying the same thing. Look, the feast is coming, and the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And so they assembled together, the chief priests did, and they thought of a way to try to kill him. What's interesting about what's being said here is in Matthew, he makes it very clear, but they said not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. In Mark, they said, verse 2, but they said not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Right, Almost word for word there, but pretty much the same thing. So the chief priests, according to these two passages, were scared that the people were going to rise up um, and, and do something about this, right? Hey, you killed him on the feast day. Why would you do this? This is a, this is a bad time to do it. We're supposed to be celebrating. We're supposed to be coming together. Uh, despite all these things that are going on, we're not supposed to have any killings or, or um, um, what's the word, executions. We're not supposed to have any of that stuff right now because this is all about God and what he did um, back then with Moses and the Passover. Luke is, is very succinct. He basically says, now as the feast of the unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called Passover, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. No context whatsoever. Very interesting. There's no context, for they feared the people. They, they sought how they might kill him because they were afraid of the people, which is not necessarily what Matthew and Mark were saying. What they were saying was, not on the feast day, because the people might get mad. Luke makes it sound like the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him because they were afraid of the people. To me, it's, they're saying something completely different. What, what Matthew and Mark are saying is, look, we, we have to find a way to do this so that the people don't rise up and say, you shouldn't have done it right then and there. What Luke is saying is they wanted to kill him because they were afraid that Jesus was getting so popular that the people were going to rise up against uh, the chief priests and start to follow him. That's what Mark is I'm sorry, Luke is suggesting here. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him because they feared an uprising from the people to join Jesus and to stop being a part of the general church. That is Luke's interpretation of the events and how they happened. So Matthew and Mark are looking at this and they're saying, look, the, the chief priests are worried about the day, and Luke is saying the chief priests are worried about an uprising. I don't necessarily think either one of them is wrong. What Luke gives us is insight into why the chief priests hated Jesus so much. And without seeing the context here in all three of them, a, a casual Christian or, or even a, uh, a heathen might have looked at this and said, see, they're inconsistent. They're not saying the same thing. So, so the Bible can't be real because it's contradicting itself. It's really not, though. They're both valid perspectives of what's going on in the church, which is that, yes, the chief priests had to be very political and careful not to kill Jesus and offend the people. At the same time, though, they were very afraid that Jesus was taking over. They saw his popularity. They saw how he was healing people, how he was changing people, how, how people's lives were being uh, really upturned and for the better to be good people, good Jews, and, and they were afraid that they were gonna lose control of the masses. 
So the chief priests wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. They feared that the people were going to tack themselves on to what Jesus was doing. What's interesting, excuse me, what's interesting here is what happens next. So you see this big gap in Luke. We're going to read that big gap right now in Matthew. We're going to start in verse 6 and go all the way to about four, uh, 16. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble you the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman has done, be told for a memorial of her. So we'll pause there. We'll stop at 13. We'll read Mark's because it's got the same thing in there. Verse 3, And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble you ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, whosoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the world, whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. This passage is not found in the book of Luke not found in the book of Luke. So you, you, I find it interesting that it's not there because... They couldn't read his handwriting. That's right. Jesus specifically said, anytime this gospel is preached, I want this to be a memorial for her. So, so why did Luke omit it? Why is it not here as part of the, um, the Last Supper narrative? I don't know. Luke could have had many different reasons for doing it. But what is interesting is... In verse 14 of Matthew, then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests. In verse 10 of Mark, and Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. In verse 3 of Luke, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the 12. Maybe he just missed the whole dinner party. Yeah, he wasn't there at the yeah. party. <clears throat> but obviously, he was. Yeah. What, what is interesting about these passages here is, so same story, very similar, right? She comes, she pours it on there. They, they murmur against themselves. Uh, they're basically saying, why is it that you are wasting all of this, this beautiful stuff? We could have sold it, give it to the poor, you know, all that. We don't know who said it. Could have been one person, could have been many of them. Many believe that it was Judas. Because Judas was the, the treasurer, the money holder. <clears throat> and so as we see this, I, I imagine Judas walking around saying, look at that. Look at that waste. We could have saved that money. And we could have given that to the poor. And he's talking into Matthew's ear. He's talking into John's ear. 
or Peter. He's talking to these people and saying, look at this. This is crazy. Why, why is there so, such waste going on? And, and so they begin to murmur, yeah, you're right. That's ridiculous. Go ahead, brother. Well, John goes so far as to call Judas a thief. A thief. Uh, which implies that he was had his hand on the in the till. He was dipping in. And he was well, he was talking about giving to the poor. He was really thinking about himself. Yes, exactly. Which which is why thank you for leading that in. Which is why Luke says what he says. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. What he's really saying is that his heart had been darkened and darkened and darkened over the years because of exactly that. He was dipping into the coffers himself. He was holding on to the money. He was seeing how much was coming in. I mean, look, we, we know Judas was there when the miracles were being performed. He was there. How can you see Jesus walk on water or, or some you know, withered hand start to pop out and all of a sudden become whole and not believe in Jesus? How can you see that miracle right there in front of you and not say, yes, that is the Son of God? So, so what is Judas doing here? And, and why did Jesus allow it, number one? But, but what is Judas doing here? Having seen all these miraculous things that Jesus was doing, we, we really see a picture of Judas and, and his heart and how it be, had become hard. And, and Luke makes it very succinct, very clear. Satan had entered into Judas at that point in time. He, he had just let go of everything because it was now all about Judas. And what Judas recognized was that Jesus was not going down the path he wanted him to. Judas wanted Jesus to, to rise up and, and to be the warrior king that the Jewish Bible had talked about, the Torah had talked about, that, that, a, that a, a king would come, a warrior would come, and it would destroy the, the nations, and, and he would bring peace to his people. That's really what Judas was looking and for. And they would be rich. And they would be rich. <laughs> and, and he would be a part of it. He would be, because he was part of the 12, yeah, he would sit around the throne with Jesus. I'm going to be one of those, those masters, those kings, with him. And that's not coming to pass. Because what is Jesus preaching? Peace. He, he's preaching, turn the other cheek. He's preaching, look, if they hurt you, receive it and just bless them. That, that's not what Judas wanted. Judas wanted someone that was going to rise up, take control, and be king. And so what we see over the life of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and their stories, we see Judas very, very slowly harden his heart to what God truly wanted for him, what Jesus wanted him to do. And, and, and so Judas then, we see here, Satan enter into him. He, he just took over. He just, he just let himself go and said, all right. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. I, I believe that Luke did not put this story in here because he wanted to get to the heart of Satan is the one that did this. That, that J Satan really went into Judas's heart and changed him for the negative, and I want to focus on the story of Judas and the story of Jesus, and he didn't put this story in here. That, I think that's why he did it. He just didn't want there to be anything else to cloud this part right here. That's me thinking. I have no idea why he didn't put it in here. He didn't get the memo. He couldn't read the handwriting. I don't know. But it's not in here, and I find it fascinating. Again, I say, though, Matthew was there. More than likely, Mark was hanging around. You, you'll remember a story, and I, I can't remember the reference right now, but you'll remember a story where, where 
Um, the disciples are being uh, uh, heard. They're running away. It's going to come up here in a minute, even though it's not part of all these scriptures, where um, the, the Roman soldiers have come in, and they're attacking, and, and all of a sudden they see somebody in the bushes, and the person in the bushes runs away, but his clothes get stuck in the bushes, and so he runs away naked. Many believe that that was Mark because Mark was constantly hanging around the disciples. He was always there. He was like one of the little kids, right? They, Allie loves to, yeah, she's waving hi. But my, my daughters love to just come, and come in and just listen to adult conversations. So just stand there. And then every once in a while, she'll have a, a perspective or an opinion, and so she'll just start talking and talking and talking and talking about what she thinks and how she thinks about it. That's the mind of a child. I want to be part of what's going on, and that's really what Mark was doing. He wanted to be part of what was going on. So that's why I think he, this story is in here for him because it resonated with him. He was probably around when it happened. He saw it. He thought, this is important. I'm going to put it in there. Matthew was there. Luke was not. So even though he heard the story, he didn't feel the, the impact of it. He didn't understand the, um, the emotion of it. He heard it as a beautiful story. And he's like, okay, that, that story to me is not relevant to what's happening at the Last Supper, so I'm going to leave it out because it just it doesn't matter, right? For these two guys, no, it was beautiful. I'm, I'm sure I could do a whole sermon on how beautiful this was. Probably you, you've probably heard one. This was such an emotional time for them to see that, to feel the rancor towards this woman because of Judas, because of Satan, and then all of a sudden for Jesus to turn it around and say, guys, I'm dying. I'm going to be killed here. And this woman did something for me that no one has ever done before. He's probably crying. There's probably a lot of hugging, a lot of emotion. And as soon as that happened, you could probably feel the spirit break in them and them understand, wow, this is amazing. What this woman really did, that, that is amazing. That's where Judas kind of stepped back. He's like, man, I, I almost had him. Right there, I almost had these guys on my side. Satan entered into him. And that's really what we get out of Luke which is why it's so wonderful to be able to read it like this. So let's keep going. Verse 15, uh, in fact, I want to read this passage here in Matthew. <clears throat> we'll start at verse 14 again. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted it with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Verse 10 in Mark, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And then in Luke, um, that was it. Um, then Satan, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and coveted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. So he begins to scheme and to plot and to ploy. Why, 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 Judas, would you do this? Again, because he wanted Jesus to be warrior king. He wanted Jesus to rise up. He thought, look, if I get these guys 
away from the multitude, if I get these guys to come attack Jesus, uh, as Jesus so lovingly says later, I could have called 10,000 angels and they would have come and they would have destroyed all you guys. But that's not why I'm here. Judas wanted to see that. He wanted Jesus to rise up into himself, into his godhood, and, and destroy the land and be a warrior. And Judas could have said, see, I pushed you to it. I made you what you are. Now I'm, I should be your second hand man. Uh, obviously not what happened. Jesus came away peacefully, and, and they ended up killing him for it. But that's what Judas wanted. And then we go into this wonderful story. Verse 17 of Matthew. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Oops, I lost it. Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Um, let me stop there for a second let me go to the next one and verse 12 of Mark the first day of unleavened bread when they had killed the Passover the disciples said unto him where wilt thou that we go and prepare thou that thou mayest eat the Passover and he sent forth two of his disciples and said unto them go ye into the city and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water follow him and wheresoever he shall go in say you to the goodman of the house the master says, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And let's stop there and go to the next one. In Luke. Verse 7, then came the day of the unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter... And John, this is the first time we know who actually went. He sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master said unto you, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Let me pause there. Yeah, I want to pause there. So we know who did it, Peter and John. We don't hear that in Matthew and Mark. We see that in Luke. Luke is obviously, again, the doctor going around interviewing people, finding out exactly what it is that happened. What we don't see in Matthew is that um, as they go out, he talks about a man. You're going to meet a man. And, and he's going to have a pitcher of water, go to him and follow him and talk to the master of the house. In, in some instances, so here in, in Matthew, if you look on the left column, verse 18, and he said, go into the city to such a man and say unto him, the master says, my time is at hand, blah, blah, blah. So they skip the pitcher guy immediately or, or just completely. Uh, Mark says it. Luke says it, Matthew doesn't say it. I would have thought that because Matthew was the disciple that he would have known the details, right? But if you really think about what's going on, Matthew has nothing to do with this story. He was not the one that was being asked to go and do things, right? So where is Matthew? What is Matthew doing? I don't know. 
maybe he's playing video games or watching TV or, or writing his book. No idea. But his, his investment is not into who's going and what they're going to do. His investment is in getting ready for the Passover. So he's probably got work to do, and he's focused on that work. So when someone comes up to him and says, hey, what happened that day? Well, here's what happened. Jesus said, go, he said to these guys, go, and you're going to meet a man, and you're going to get stuff ready. I was busy doing other things, not important for this story, so let me just write what I do know. Jesus sent people to go get stuff ready. To Mark, we see Mark is probably following these guys around. Okay, look, they're going to stay here. These, these other ten disciples are going to stay here. Well, nine if Judas is off running around. These nine disciples are going to stay here, and, and they're going to do stuff, but these guys are going somewhere. I wonder if Mark followed them and actually went and did stuff with them. Or I wonder if after when they came back, he said, hey, guys, what happened? Well, man, it was amazing. Jesus told us that we're going to meet a guy. He's going to have a pitcher of water. We're going to follow him, and he's going to take us to this too. So we don't know how Mark got the detail. All we know is that Mark got the detail, and we see that detail happening in Luke. What I find beautiful about this is, is this. Jesus says you're going to meet a man who has a pitcher of water. How many people you think are out there just carrying a pitcher of water? A lot. I got one in my wallet. That's right. How many people are out there with a the pitcher of water and they're just kind of walking about? Because you go to a well. Back then you went to a well, you grabbed your water, you went home and did whatever it is that you needed to do with it. Go ahead, brother. Yeah. Well, usually that was the work that the ladies did. Yeah. Yeah. So that it would be unusual for them to see a man do that. So yeah. that was something to look for. Definitely something to look for, right? So, so you've got women going around doing this with the water. Now you see a man doing it, which is obviously going to stand out. But, but the fact that Jesus knew, obviously prophetically, I mean, we, he's, we've seen him do miracles, but prophetically, there's going to be a man who's got a pitcher of water, go find him and go follow him. So he sees this man. They see this man like, wow, that's him. They don't go to the guy and talk to him. They're not supposed to anyway. They go to him, and they follow him home. And they follow him to a place where uh, they're supposed to talk to the master of that house. How prophetic, though, for Jesus to say, you're going to see a man, you're going to have a pitcher of water, you're going to follow him, and then you're going to go to the guest chamber, to the, the master of that house, and you're going to rent that room. Um, Did he know he was being followed? I, probably not. He's probably looking, why are these dudes following me? He, so he's got this pitcher. The, the interesting thing is here that um, the guy with the pitcher, to your point, right, allowed these guys to follow him. That, that he's looking and saying, yeah, this is absolutely normal for two dudes just to follow me home. Probably going to beat me up and take my stuff. They're probably going to rob our house. Or, or did he feel something in his spirit saying, hey, there's something going on here. And, and so when he gets home and they talk to the master, you notice that there was, we don't, they don't talk about haggling. There might have been some. I don't know. They don't talk about haggling price. They just say, look, Jesus is coming. He wants to spend time. He wants to spend Passover here. And, and the master's like, yes, absolutely. I wonder if he got a check in his spirit as well saying this is exactly what's supposed to happen. Obviously, he's probably heard of Jesus. Everybody knows Jesus. He's probably thinking, yes, I want this guy in my house. Uh, he could have been of the other camp, right? Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want any of that tomfoolery around here. Please leave. Jesus knew exactly what was supposed to happen and how, and we see that in these stories. Fascinating that it does not happen 
in the book of Matthew, but, but it's, it makes sense. If, if you're looking at this as, as, as someone who wants to debunk the Bible, absolutely you could look at it and say, well, yeah, see, they don't, make, they don't align. They're not talking about the same thing. Their stories aren't straight, so obviously that has to be fake. But when you do look at it like this and, and the progression of what's going on, you see the, the character of the person in the story. You see Matthew and him being, look, I'm, I wasn't there. I don't know, so I'm not going to tell you what happened because I wasn't there to see it. I will tell you what I saw and what I heard. Jesus sent two of the guys to go find a room, and that's exactly what happened. They found a room. That's Matthew's story, and it just makes sense. It's beautiful. All right, let's keep going. Matthew... Um, 20? Yes, thank you so much. Now, when the evening was come, he sat down with the 12, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered, and he said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, You have said it. And then he goes on and blesses. We'll read that in a second. But let's go on to Mark. Uh, where are we here? 17. 17. And in the evening he came, he came with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eats with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes out as it, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And you don't hear about Judas there. Judas saying, Lord, is it me? And yes, it's going to be you. Uh, and then Luke. Um... 14, let's do 13. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, which with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So notice there is no, is it me, is it me? He glosses over it. So what we see here, and, and that's why you see the blanks in, in your page. Uh, it's a little difficult, I'm sure, because it's one in front of the other. Uh, in verse 17, I'm sorry, 18, 19, 20 in Matthew, we see the disciples sitting down, coming together. In, in Luke, there's a big passage of stuff that happens before then, which is him actually taking the cup, breaking the bread, going through all of the motions of, of communion. And then in verse 21, he starts talking about, um, but behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me at this table. Verse 22 in Luke, and truly the son of man goes as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also strife among them. This is also not found in the others. 
strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. So, so what is the point of all this? And then we'll read 27 because there's more there. Chaos. That's the point. There was chaos in the camp at the Last Supper. Whenever I think of the Last Supper, I think of the painting, right? You, you have Jesus in the middle. You have all the people around him. Uh, it, it was probably not a long table like that. More than likely, they were sitting in a circle. Uh, they probably had the food in front of them. They were probably on the, on the ground with pillows and coverings and things, not necessarily on chairs or like, like, like at a mats when we go for the conferences. It wasn't like that with that big, long table. It was different. So, so we don't know exactly what it was like. History tells us that it was more than likely like this round thing, and they're talking amongst themselves. They're drinking. They're having fun. Um, well, not necessarily fun, but you know what? They're, they're, they're together. They're fellowshipping. And, and it's not like you can hear everything because there was probably a whole lot of bustle going around around them. People celebrating outside, people celebrating uh, on the first floor, people coming in and bringing food and a lot of clanking and waiters and all this stuff going on, right? Someone was probably playing music. You, you've been at a restaurant where the music's too loud. Someone was probably playing music. And, and so Jay-Z's in the background and they're just listening and talking and trying to do all these things, right? Uh, or Justin Bieber. So they're there. And, and they're, they're talking together. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, guys, somebody is going to betray me. No, no, Lord, no, no, that's never going to happen, never going to happen. And he says, yeah, the, the, and who, who is it, Lord, who is it? The one that, that dips with me. Well, we've all been dipping with you. Every single one of us have been here eating this communion, and we've all been dipping. So, so what is Jesus trying to say? And so at some point in time, one of the disciples, Peter, John, turns to the end. What is he talking about? Hey, don't forget we need to blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're having conversations among themselves. And, and Matthew raises his hand, Lord, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? No, no, it's not you. Oh, thank God. It's not me. Guys, you know, we, we've really got to band together and blah, blah. So there's conversation. There's noise. And Judas at the end says, Lord, is it me? And he says, you said it. And Matthew, the only one that writes it down, probably heard it. And I don't know if he understood what it meant. I don't know if he was paying attention enough to say, that's what he's talking about. Judas is going to betray him. I should do something about it. We don't know. We know he heard it. We know he wrote it down. We don't know if he actually thought of it in the way that it was supposed to be thought of at that point in time. I wonder if Matthew heard it and it wasn't until later that he understood exactly what it meant. That he said, that is what Jesus meant when he said you said it, that Judas was the one that was going to betray him because he obviously betrayed him. We buried Jesus. This was a long time ago, and now I'm, I'm remembering Jesus saying you said it, and that's why he writes it down because he wants – obviously he's writing a story of what's going on, but that's why he didn't do anything necessarily about it. And that's why we also don't see it in Mark, and we don't necessarily see it in Luke. Mark – Probably didn't write it because he wasn't there and he didn't know. He's not the one that heard it. He, he's, again, probably the one that wrote first, and so you wouldn't see that in his account. Luke, uh, again, trying to be as accurate as possible, this is conjecture if you really think about it. This is Matthew saying, I heard 
so-and-so say this, this, and that. And so Luke didn't write it down because that wasn't part of his narrative at all. But we know Matthew heard it, or we see that Matthew probably heard it, and that's why he writes it down. They're asking themselves in Luke's, verse 24, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Jesus is here about to die. He, he's talking to them about communion and, and banding together and, and being the greatest and the least and all this stuff, but they're all fighting within each other about who's going to be the greatest, which is why we see or why we can understand that they weren't paying attention to who the betrayer was because they were so focused on themselves. When the Bible says, one second, when the Bible says that Satan entered into Judas, I wonder if Satan was in the room floating around causing all sorts of chaos. Go ahead, brother. I'm just, it, it's amazing that there's such a, in the room, there's such a conflict between love for Jesus, loyalty yes. to Jesus, versus faith. Yes. Or belief. Let's say belief. First of all, they love him, they're following him, they're loyal to him. We will not, I will not, none of us will betray him. And yet the belief comes in, wait a minute, Jesus said it, so it has to be true. Who is it? Yeah. And, and they're dealing with this on the side, in their minds for a, for a while, balling over there. Yeah. All the rest of this happens as well. But right. But the conflict is between Jesus said it, it has to be true. Yeah. That's the belief in faith. Yeah. But it, it, it can't be, is it me? Is it me? Yeah, because it's got to happen. You said it was going to happen, so it has to Boy, <laughs> we need to believe like that. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if, if the enemy really didn't have any influence over the room until Jesus accepted his entry. In other words, right. Judas, whatever Jesus was contemplating, allow the enemy to enter into him, which then affected the room. And I think we've all been here long enough to see when someone is dealing with that, it can enter into yeah. the entire meeting because of someone's welcoming of that thing. Yeah, which, which is why I think it's powerful that they put, those two guys put the story of the alabaster box. Obviously he said, hey, this needs to be said. But that to me was definitely part of it. He had already started the seeds. Oops started the seeds of dissension, right? Why, why are we spending this much money on, on this? Or why are we wasting so much money when we could have given that to the poor? Seed of dissension. And, and to your point, at that time when Judas is doing stuff, his seeds start to sprinkle out to everybody else. It wasn't until he accepted that that it started to sprinkle out to everybody else. And, and yes, I, I love the way you said that because when you think about it, he's, they're, they're sitting there and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. No, 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 no. That's never going to happen. Is it me, Lord? It's, it's not you. I'll tell you why it's not me, guys, because I've been with Jesus from the beginning. All of a sudden, they start to puff themselves up. And, and where we see Luke's, who is greatest among them. But guys, I've been with Jesus from the beginning. I was, look, I was on a boat, and he called me, and he said, you're going to be a fisher of man, and we caught all these fish. I've been doing miracles with Jesus from the beginning. I was one of the first disciples he ever called, Right? All of a sudden, they're puffing themselves up. And, and to your point, Judas starts that seed, and they all start to receive it. They all start to feel that selfishness of, I'm going to be great. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm, I'm his best disciple here. And Jesus has to shut that down. We see Jesus shutting it down in verse 24, 25, 26. 
kings of Gentiles exercise lordship. But, but you shall not be so. He that is greatest, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he does, that he that doth serve. So, where are we? How much? We have just a few more minutes, and we are two pages. All right. Um, so I'm not going to read the rest of Luke's verse 27, 28, 29, 30. Uh, don't worry about who's greater. I have appointed you in the kingdom as my father's appointed me. You may eat and drink at my table, blah, blah, blah. And then we start in verse 26 for Matthew, 22 in Mark. And you see that it's missing over here in Luke's. This is what was already said in Luke's at the beginning, 17, 18, 19, and 20. He took the cup. He gives thanks, and he says, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. That part, Luke puts before uh, the, the contention, and this part they put afterwards. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, this is the cup, New Testament, New Covenant, um, I will not drink of it. You all shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock, that after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. In verse 33 of Matthew, Peter answered and said, Though all men shall be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you that this night before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said, Thou, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples so at this point in time jesus has shut it down guys stop talking about how great you are stop talking about how you're going to be the best and you're going to take over this ministry i need you to be the least and and then peter rises up and says look i i will never deny you i'm, I'm i've got your back i'm behind you all the way verse 29 of mark but peter said unto him although all shall be offended yet will i not and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you that this day, even in this night, before the cock, crock, crock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spoke more vehemently, If I should die with you, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Luke's is a little bit more expansive. Verse 31, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Let me pause there for a second. This is the second time that Luke has subscribed what's going on to Satan. Matthew didn't do it. Mark didn't do it. Luke is subscribing what's going on here twice to Satan. Once when Judas was going off to do his thing, he's, it, Luke says Satan entered into him. And now Luke is saying, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. But I have prayed for you that, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen your brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And this is not found in the others. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked you anything? And they said nothing. Then he said unto them, But now he that has a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip, and he hath no sword, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, 
here are two swords, and he said unto them, it's enough. I don't think that Jesus was really talking about getting a sword, a physical one, having one right then, because one clamors, and he says, hey, I've got two. Are, are we good? And yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's enough. It's not what Jesus was talking about. We, we don't need swords. I, I want you to recognize the mentality of the sword and, and stop thinking this way and start thinking this way. That's really what Jesus was trying to tell them at this point in time. But again, I, I find it very interesting that, that Luke subscribes in, in, in these two passages this type of communion to what Satan is doing in their hearts. He's really wanting that to expose the fact that they allowed the enemy to creep in. And he wants us. I, I believe this is why God allowed him to write it this way. He wants us to see the spiritual influence of what's going on in that atmosphere and not just the circumstance. That these guys were not just selfish people. This was a spiritual thing that was happening, and it was happening right before their eyes, and they didn't recognize it. Luke is saying, open your eyes, whoever reads this. Satan was a big part of this, and you need to see that. You need to see the spiritual influence of what's going on here. So that, that is it. Um, I, I know it took a while, but, but again, fascinating how the stories just weave together. They're not the same, obviously very similar. They, they move things around. It's not because they are wrong. One person was right, one person was wrong. It's all about perspective and what they're doing. I, I love to see the perspective of each one, how they treated the story, how, how their personalities came out in that story. And really, when you read it like this, you can truly see the message that God is trying to give us because of what's missing and because of what's there that's added by the other people. So with that, uh, any more comments? Great commentary so far. Well, I wonder, you know, I think about uh, the first two, maybe they were mo more emotionally involved. So yeah. seeing spiritually what's happening was really not their forte. They were just really more, you know, emotionally connected. Luke, being a clinician, he probably sat back and watched more than he yeah. did engage. Yeah. And so he was able to discern the atmosphere. But, but two, I think about the enemy's role in the in the Lord's crucifixion, and we know that it was something that had to be. So to me, it it really displayed how the enemy, how what the enemy's role is a lot of times in the plan of God. Right. Because I think Christians really miss that. Yeah. We try to. To say the enemy's after us, he's trying to stop us and get us. Then that is true, but since God uses the enemy to 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 promote His own plan, we have to see the plan in the midst of what the enemy's doing. Yeah. Even the sifting of wheat, since we've all been sifted this wheat, <laughs> and it's part of the refining process. We know it's part of because what happens after the sifting? You can go and strengthen your brethren when right. you overcome. So it really, to me, shows me shows me. Not the fact that Luke said it, but it just shows me what we have, how we have to view the enemy in a different perspective than I think what the church has over, you know, the, the decades and the millennia. Because the enemy is a part of the, <laughs> the enemy is a part of God's plan. He uses the enemy to his own benefit. Yeah. And to me, it just shows me how I can. That's how I can trust the Lord, knowing the enemy is not going to ever have anything over me that that, that God does not allow. And no temptations take you. Yeah. And therefore, I'm able to partner with the Father through what those things are. Yeah. That's good.
interesting to me that, that um, the enemy strategy from the beginning to the end was causing offense. It is about, you know, don't be offended. And Judas was offended in the whole alabaster box. It could have been about the money, but it could have been he was offended by the whole setting. Yeah. And once that offense hit his heart, it opened him up for the enemy to come in. And, and we all think, oh, wow, you know, I'm above that. I'm beyond that. But then Peter and how easy it is to allow that measure of what we witness, what we see, what we're a part of, to offend us and to allow the Satan to come in and start having his work. But then at the same time, that is part of the sifting. Because I think we learned, we've learned and grown and become more sanctified through the things that we've fallen offended by that then the Lord brings a light into that we allow, you know, we submit to the process and then say, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and then we do. You know how easy it is. Well, what's funny is what you, when you said that, it, it really did bring to light that offense comes from when something is happening in a way different than what you want. Well, and that is just, that's just church-wide. That is people-wide. We have so many opinions of the way something should happen. And, of course, for Judas, it may have been to do with money or whatever his motives were. But still, you know, he had in his head that Jesus was going to be the king and he was going to be one of his courtly fellas, and they were all going to be living, you know, and lavish and ruling over everything. Okay? So so he has, I mean, and how many times, not just going to say that as, you know, in the last 20 however many years, how many times have you seen something, you know, begin to progress and you get offended because it's not happening the way you think it should should happen. Yeah. I mean, that is just 101. And it is. Offense is one, it's really the main separator in the church. Yeah. When it could have been like just this heinous crime, you know, I mean, it could have been, it always comes down to the matter of the heart and what's going on inside of there. And every person who left this subtle. church left because what okay. Pastor was doing, they did not like what he was doing and where he was taking them. It really just boiled down to that one thing. But for the process of sanctification of God's people. Right, and that's, you had to submit to it in order to overcome and then be able to empower others or strengthen others. I mean, boom. Yeah. Christianity 101, this one lesson, baby, and you're so amazing. Look at that. I know, right? Of course, you didn't have it without Monica. That's right. right? I know. <laughs> Enjoy teaching. You sound like you were about to say something. I'm sorry. You look like you were about to say something. Well, you know, Judas was a zealot prior to meeting Christ. Yeah. And we see some of the old life coming through. And there's a few weeks' lessons on that one. Yeah, that's the same Because problem. we let our old life seep through into our Christian life all too often. Yeah. And it was happening to Judas. We see it happening. And uh, that, that was the whole money and power motivation. And I wonder if his testing didn't Secretary begin. Secretary of the Treasury. Yeah. His testing began early with the early money. On, but he was on. failing in that because yeah. he was... And it's interesting that Jesus placed him in that position because Matthew's former life That's was what, money. Yeah. You know, all of us would have one. selected Matthew yeah. to I, take care of the money because that was his... That was his expertise. I, I wonder if Judas volunteered but, for that. But Jesus chose Judas perhaps to put him in 
uh, a place where he could deal with a small amount of money to overcome. Mm. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. But it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. What an accident. And it, it helps me too to think, you know, like like Ag, like Acts, Luke was writing to Theopolis, yeah. who was believed to be a Gentile uh, convert, and not and may not have been particularly um, accustomed to the Jewish customs. And so, in the instance of perfuming a body and so on, and the ritual that is cultural for the Jews, he didn't say anything about it. But something like the like uh, the crucifixion and what the what the blood means and the and the stripes and the Luke takes time to tell Theopolis and explain it to him and those like him. He knows he's not just writing to him, but he's writing to his uh, profile. And so he takes time to elaborate in places where the Jewish writers do not. And he's he is never there during any of these events. Right. He is getting all of his information through research, asking questions, interviewing from Mary all the way up to everyone Jesus knew that he could find, and putting it all together. Um, but it, it it's it seems like he's he's going to focus on what he thinks is the most important, and elaborate on it for people who are not familiar with the customs. But if it's strictly a custom thing, in his view, doesn't even mention it. Yeah. So then that brings up the point that if he wasn't there and he didn't witness what happened, then he didn't discern that and he was there. So it was after the fact that maybe the spirit just gave him the information yeah. that right. the enemy had been involved in that. Well, and, and you said that earlier. Um, and I thought that that's exactly right. What what Luke has done is he's evaluated the situation and said, "Hey, hindsight 2020, it's very clear that this was the enemy attacking." But but you're in the moment. No one sitting there, in my opinion, the Last Supper would have said, "Wow, the enemy's here. We've got to stop." Because you just don't do that. It's not until after it's all happened and you're evaluating all the steps that it took to get here that you think that was the enemy. How do you not recognize that that was the enemy? because they were just too close to it. He was not at all, which is why he could say that. Plus, he was evaluating everything he was, all the information he was taking in. He was getting everybody's testimony regarding it. He yeah. was also getting a lot of thought to everything. Yeah. And of course, the spirit. We know and the spirit, of course. Was, yeah. was leading that. But. Yeah. So very interesting. Yeah, thank and you for your time. Let me just, you know, I can't help but wonder how much of the Jewish custom he was learning at the time yeah. that he was doing his research. Uh, of course, he spent so much time with Paul, he, he had a good education. Yeah. yeah. All right, thank you all. We'll, uh, that was very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you.